third week that we're talking about it. My goal is to scan many of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament narratives um, in regards to family worship and look at some of the blessings and curses that are associated and given in these um, in these narratives. We're going to look at how the blessings and curses are associated with a family's level of commitment to teach and walk in the ways of God in their families um, and how that has affected everything. So the first week, Patrick kind of gave us this definition of the cultural mandate. It says, The grand purpose of mankind is to create godly cultures where the Lord has sovereignty placed them, beginning in the individual through conversion, then in the home, community, and world. So God's call is to fill the earth and have dominion. We talked about that this morning just in the sermon. Patrick mentioned it. Um, To expand the garden, to expand God's kingdom. We talked about that the last few weeks and what that looks like. God's ordinary means for doing this is through procreation, through the normal family procreation. It's through the family. But that's not the only means. It can happen in every sphere and act of and, and every sphere and part of culture that we choose to engage. John talked a lot about that last week. So this ordinary means, this call, this cultural mandate, is that parents would exercise these directives given in Deuteronomy six. We talked about those last week. To teach the character and the ways of God diligently to our children. That they may Follow after God. Expand the kingdom. Then those children would teach their children to expand the kingdom, and so on and so forth. So it looks a little bit like this. You've got a person teaching their family, their co-workers, anybody in their sphere culturally, to obey the Lord, to follow in His ways then that, those people, it exponentially grows and grows. In the world, people call this, what? A pyramid scheme. A pyramid scheme. <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. Exactly. But it's one of those things that we need to redeem from culture. It's not a scheme. It's God's plan for fulfilling that cultural mandate. This is what He wants us to do. It's God's vision for culture change. God's plan is not that we just teach His Word, that we just read it out loud to the kids or to people in our sphere of influence. It's that we teach them to obey God's Word. We teach them how to apply God's Word to their lives, not just the Word. Teach them to apply God's Word to the light of the culture and the day and the time in which they live, not just their lives. How to to teach them how to, what John said last week, teach them how to reject and redeem all aspects of ungodly culture. Either reject them if they're unredeemable or redeem them. Teach them to support or initiate godly cultures in their homes. Show them how God's Word speaks to the ungodly culture and how they find themselves living in that ungodly culture. How and what they're supposed to invest their time and energy in. 
how to look at their culture and interpret their reactions to it based on God's Word, not their emotions, not their intuition, especially not how their culture tells them to react to what they're telling them. So really our focus this morning is that we want to observe these narratives and these passages that we're going to pull up. Some of these here, some of them I'm going to read. And look at the revealed blessings and curses associated with these passages. Try to figure out what level of commitment to the cultural mandate God requires. So there's some things that I want you to ask yourself as we're reading this morning. As we're looking at these passages. Sorry. Which parties and to what extent are they responsible? Do they bear the punishment? Are they given for failure to properly executing family worship and the mandate? Who's responsible? Who's punished? Who's judged? Is it individuals? Is it families? Is it communities? Is it nations? Is it the world? And in light of these successes and failures that we're going to see this morning, how much time and energy should I be focusing on fulfilling this cultural mandate? In my immediate family? In my church family? In my community? In the world around me? In other words, how far up the priority list does this happen in my daily life? As an individual, in my family, how far up the list does it go? How, where should it be? And where that is in my priority list, how does that affect the effective, effectiveness of my family in fulfilling the cultural mandate? If it's low on the priority list, how is that going to affect it? If it's high on the priority list, how is that going to affect it? So, as I said before, we're going to look at these passages, these narratives, and observe the blessings and curses associated with the family's commitment to teach and walk in the ways of God. So to start, I would ask you, how fast did, did mankind reject God's leadership? How quickly? Let's think about Adam. Why is it the sin of Adam and not Eve? Why is it referred to in Scripture as the sin of Adam and not Eve? I mean, Eve ate first, right? That was the problem. We're not supposed to eat. So why is it the sin of Adam? Eve was deceived. Adam was not. He entered into it full with his eyes wide open. Yes. So the question would be, what you're getting at and what you're saying, why did Adam let her eat? Why did he let her eat? And I would argue it's because he failed at this. He failed as a father and a husband. He failed to teach and command the ways and character of God to Eve. Point blank. He failed. He had a culture of one. (laughs) And he failed. Culture of one. And that one failure has affected every single person born since. Everyone. How many generations had passed, if anybody knows this, before God declared the whole earth to be utterly evil and destroy it? How many generations from Adam to Noah? 
Anybody? Nine. Nine generations. Now that doesn't seem like much, but if you think about population, growth rate, especially taking into account the long lives that those people lived back then, there was at the bare minimum millions of people on the earth at that time. Maybe more. A lot. A lot of people. And one righteous man. In Genesis 6-5 it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and in every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6-5 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And in verses 12 and 13 it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with all the earth. This is, at its core, once again, a failure of the people that were alive at that time to fulfill the cultural mandate. A failure of fathers to lead their families. Because of Adam's failure and all the men after him, the entire world and all that was in it was destroyed by the flood. For that reason. So, next I want to kind of look at several of these narratives and the impact, and the impact that these men and these fathers and these narratives had on the next generation. Now, a little disclaimer, because I said the word men and fathers, it doesn't mean it's time for the females in the room to check out. Men and fathers are the primary ones responsible, as we discussed with Adam. But that doesn't negate the mother and the woman's role in the world. The mandate is to be fulfilled by both of them. Um, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the helper helps him fill the earth and subdue it. The helper helps him fulfill the cultural mandate. God said it was not good for man to do it alone. Point blank, period. He needs his helper. So, alright. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Joe, go for it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Alright, so the first one we're going to look at is Abraham. Um, the, since Noah, the perpetuation of God's ways and God's character we looked at over the last few weeks was first given to Abraham in this, in this call to him. He was to perpetuate the ways and character of God to all the future generations after him. John last week says, We are many sons of Abraham. As the children's song says, we are all his children. And I would say that he was successful with Isaac to an extent. But as a whole, I think we should say that he failed. And this failure is most clearly seen in Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction. This is where Abram found himself. This is the culture he was in. He was placed there by God. He was sovereignly placed there. And he did not affect the change that he was called to affect. 
Let's think about Joseph. Joseph affected massive cultural change in the situations that God put him in. Massive. If you remember, he was sold by his brothers and purchased as a slave. He served so well in that position that he was made in charge of all of Potiphar's house. Everything that he owned, everything that was his, except his wife. That's it. That was the only limit. And he did so faithfully. He served in that position even to his own imprisonment because of his willingness to not go to that woman when she asked him. So he goes to prison. He served so well in prison in prison that he's put in charge of all the prisoners. The culture he was put in. God sovereignly placed him there. He just obeyed. He, he followed God in that way. He interprets a dream for a man who's in prison. And he promises, he helps him with that interpretation. That man promises to help free him. And then he forgets him. And yet he stays and he faithfully serves the Lord in the position he's in. Then two years later, that man remembers Joseph and the help that he gave him. He brings him to Pharaoh, helps him interpret his dream. Pharaoh brings him out of prison. And then what happens? What happens to Joseph? He's put in charge of the entire kingdom. Nay, under Pharaoh. That's it. He was the second in command. Because of his molded godly character, his wisdom, his leadership, Pharaoh recognized God for who God was. He recognized God in the work that Joseph had done. And he was put in this role, and because of that, he saved an entire region of people from starvation. Just because he obeyed God's command. Let's look at Joshua. Judges 2, 1 through 10. Yes. Judges 2, 1 through 10. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in their sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Hilles, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Thank you, Woody. 
So we've got Joshua. Joshua followed Moses for 50 years under his leadership. He learned from him. And then Joshua led the people of Israel and taught them the ways and character of God faithfully. He did really well. But even as a godly of a leader as Joshua was, the people still failed to conquer their own sinfulness, especially idolatry. And we see that play out as we read through the book of Judges. Conquering our own sinfulness is a daily and demanding task, I would say. That requires much energy and intentionality. And we must not become content with our own spiritual maturity. We must push forward in growth. So, if we look back on Joshua's life, the generation that was led by Moses, the generation that was led by Joshua, even though they witnessed all of these great and mighty acts of God, everything that you read about, from the Exodus and everything up to the point that Woody just read when they entered the land, all of that. And then you have a generation of people that it says, after Joshua, who did not, know the Lord. The next generation. This generation not only abandoned the ways of God, but they sought after and worshipped the idols that they were supposed to drive out from the land and destroy in the conquest. This is clearly a failure on the part of the generation after Joshua. And it's what perpetuated this continue, this cycle of judgment, upon judgment, upon judgment, upon the people of God in the book of Judges. In one generation, the people abandoned God for idols. Our job as leaders, as parents, as grandparents is serious. One generation. Let's think about Eli, 1 Samuel 3, 10-18. The Lord came and stood calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So we've got Eli. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a judge. And as he functioned in these roles, he was, I would say, moderately successful. But it's clear, as we read through this passage, he failed as a father. And he failed as a leader of the people of Israel in a big way. 
As we all know, in leadership roles, pride and privilege are a problem. They clouded his judgment and his ability to lead. If you remember, at one point in his life, he's observing Hannah on her hands and knees, pouring her heart out, asking God for a son, asking Him to bless her. And what does Eli see? What does he observe? What does he think she is? He assumes she's drunk. He can't even recognize godly spiritual worship when he sees it. He knew, as the passage said, his sons were committing evil, but chose to do nothing about it. 1 Samuel 2, 12, 23-26, and 29. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? He knew the evil that his sons were committing. He absolutely knew, there's no question. He should have removed his sons from those priestly duties as the the prophet, the priest, and the judge in that time. And he willingly chose not to do it. He ignored them. And because he ignored this gross sin in his family's life and his son's life and his son's life and also his own sin, we know Israel's a nation and his family paid the price with their lives, including his. First Samuel four, sixteen through eighteen. And the men said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? Abraham brought the news, answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the, ark of the, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. So forty years of misjudgment. Eli dies, his sons die, the ark is captured. And Israel's defeated because of one man's neglect to fulfill the mandate to train his sons and and his failure to not punish them when they did not obey. Any questions, thoughts, comments? wasn't one person saying this. Many people in the community saying what should have been done and yet Eli was unwilling to do it. 
All right, for a little bit here, we're going to look at, I wanted to highlight some responsibilities and the impact of grandparents on the next generation. As we're talking about these parents and these leaders, we have lots of grandparents in the room, and I wanted to focus on that. So 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 5. So Timothy's faith was clearly passed down to him from his grandmother to his mother to him. Multi-generationally, they poured into Timothy. They taught him to love the Lord. They taught him to obey His commands. And while grandparents don't exercise the same authority in a situation as a mother to a son or a father to a son or a child, their role is no less influential and significant. They have a huge role to play. This was no doubt in Paul's mind that Timothy was the man he was because of two generations of of faithful training and teaching. There's no doubt in Paul's mind, as Noah just read. He was consistently taught the ways and character of God and how to apply them to all of life by his parents and his grandparents. Period. Proverbs 17.6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So grandchildren are a pride and a blessing, the scripture says. Genesis 31.55, it says, Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Grandparents should love showing love and giving blessings to their grandchildren. Genesis 48, 8-16 says, When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, and so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I, have, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God let, God let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand and Israel in his left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and left it on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God whom has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my father Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Israel is fulfilling the cultural mandate in his grandchildren. He's loving them. He's blessing them. The responsibility of passing on God's ways, His character, teaching all that He has said and done, all that He has commanded us to do, is both a parent's duty and a grandparent's duty. Exodus 34, 6-7. Who has that?
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A grandparent's sin will affect their grandchildren. This is not just a parent-to-child issue. This is a grandparent issue. Deuteronomy 4, 9. Only take care and keep your souls diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Teach your children's children the ways of the Lord. Titus 2, 1 through 5. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, will be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, So the older men and the older women have a God-given command to teach the next generation and the following generations to minister to them, to guide them in the Lord. They have this command. So what now? Why talk about or think about all of these narratives, everything that we've examined this morning in this way? Why, why, Why think about these things? Why does it matter to me how good or how bad Abraham was at being a leader or a parent or Joshua or Jacob or Eli or Joseph? Talking about these narratives without applying them to us today and to our culture here and now is not very helpful in us helping, in us doing this, in us fulfilling this cultural mandate. We must apply these truths to our lives. But how? So let me ask you, If you knew at the age of 16 your child would be drafted into war, what would you do? Occasionally, casually, once a month or once a week, talk to them about what battle is, what a gun is, who the enemy is? Or would you spend all of each day, wherever you found yourself, whether it was sitting down to a meal, driving in the car, standing in a store, training them in the ways and philosophies of battle. How to put on their armor, ways to attack, ways to defend, strategies strategies of attack, strategies of defense, how to clean and repair their weapon, their character qualities it will take to follow a commander and defend the helpless, how to survive, how to serve, how to prepare their hearts and minds for the battle that's coming. We would diligently do these things. And our job as leaders, as parents, as grandparents, is to prepare the next generation for, their, for the battle with the greatest enemy that exists on the earth. He is real. Ephesians 6, 10-20 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Putin is evil. Kim Jong-un is evil. Hitler is evil. None of these men hold a candle to the enemy that our children and grandchildren, our friends, our community, our nation, and the world face daily. None of them. We must train ourselves in the next generation in the ways and character of God, so that in their days of battle, they will be ready to push against the gates of hell itself. Our calling is not just to do the minimum, but to change the culture and prepare a generation of people for a battle of their lives so that they can prepare the following generation for the battle of their lives until the Lord Jesus returns one day to finally put an end to the battle. Until that day comes, we teach, we train, we strive to emulate the Lord Jesus in all that we say and do, expanding His kingdom so that the next generation will do the same for our good and His glory. This is what we're called to do. This is the cultural mandate that we've been given. Anything? Any comments? Maybe just one. Um, We know that uh, the, the apostles of Christ, for instance, we see sibling devotion here. One brother fetched another uh, for the kingdom. And so certainly uh, we see it's appropriate that we view, you know, fathers as leaders in this. Yeah. Uh, but, but there's a tremendous, you know, I think it's important that siblings view their, their own responsibility not to lord it over or, you know, be the commanding officer of the younger children, but just to recognize that there, there is a real viable position yes. of, of leadership. I mean, you know, how many rebellious older, older, older siblings have led, led astray those under them? And how many of them have been responsible for their, uh, their siblings, um, you know, faithfulness as well? So Yes. Good thing. Thank you. All right. Okay. Let's pray.